Okay, y'all, we're taking a little break from Mark. Are you okay with that? All right. It is Christmas. I didn't time it right. We didn't get, well, we probably should have started the book at Christmas if that's what we were going to do. But then we're in Mark, right? And if we're in Mark, Mark doesn't have a, an incarnation story. Remember how Mark starts with Jesus? He's already in the wilderness. He's already in action. He's already at it. His ministry is at work. So uh, Mark wouldn't have helped us here. So we're, we're going to uh, Luke today. So if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, that's where we're going to be uh, before we have our wonderful reader come up and read for us. Hi, Slim, I just want you to know he's now my reader. So you're going to have to get your own reader. Just want to let you know. So next week, you're on your own, bud. All right, when I heard about the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre on Friday, December 14th, I was actually told by my oldest son, Dad, did you hear what happened? I said, no. He told me. I went to the TV, immediately flicked it on. The first image that came on the screen was a still photo. Uh, Everyone's seen it. Uh, It's a a chilling photo. It's now the iconic photo of that um, that whole sad, sad, destructive story, right? It's a picture of a dark-haired young woman. She's crying in her cell phone. You all know this picture. Uh, Her face is distraught. Her hands pressed over her heart while she's on the phone. Her name is Carly Soto. She's the young woman. The photo was taken just as she was getting the news that her big sister, Victoria, uh, who is a first-grade teacher at that elementary school, was dead. Uh, Two hours earlier, shots and screams were shrieking over the intercom, the PA system of that elementary school. And what she uh, did, Victoria did, is she reacted real quickly and she got uh, all her kids and rushed them into the little cubby holes and the little uh, storage places around the room. And she did so very, very quickly. As soon as the last child was hidden from sight, the gunman bursts into the room and starts uh, demanding where her kids are. And what she does is she faces him alone, right? Uh, And she literally, literally puts herself between uh, her children and this evil, like a human shield. And uh, she says, they're not here. They're gone. Uh, They're in the gym. And uh, his eyes uh, darkened, uh, and he squeezed the trigger, right? So she dies. Um, her children live. Uh, when Carly uh, was asked, interviewed this past week about this photo, this iconic photo of her getting the news, this is what she said. She said, it's like a reminder of that moment all over again. It kills. Um, when Carly sees the photo, she lives it all over again. Uh, When she sees the photo, um, the horror overwhelms her. The unbearable loss sweeps her away. Uh, The shredding pain cuts her to pieces. Uh, The photo for her is now inseparably and deeply connected to her life, her history, her story, as Slim was saying earlier. And obviously also her sisters, and now her families, and many, many others. Uh, And it's like this for her forever. She could be walking down the street and uh, grab a 
Life magazine, if that magazine's still around, and it could be the year in 2012, and this could be years from now, and she could be just accidentally flipping through, and then she sees the photo, and wham! She lives it all over again, right? Uh, Here's what we're going to do today. Christmas is like Carly's photo, but in a completely different way. Uh, Christmas is inseparably and deeply connected to our lives, our histories, uh, our stories forever. It's almost like so much so that every time we see Christmas, we should experience over and over again an unshakable comfort. In other words, we should experience over and over again reliving Christmas. Uh, So today, I want to welcome you to Christmas. I want to welcome you beyond the eggnog. I want to welcome you beyond the cool music. I want to welcome you beyond the gifts, and I want to welcome you beyond the fruitcake and beyond Uncle Fred and the difficulty of discerning those two. I want to welcome you (laughs) to Christmas. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. So God, we ask that uh, Jesus, because of, of your accomplishment, that you would unleash heaven on us. You would unleash your spirit on us even now to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we, we thank you that that this is what you delight to do. This is what you came to do. This is the unshakable comfort of Christmas. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, the waiting time between the second uh, installment of the Lord of the Ring trilogy. Remember what that was? Two Towers. And then you had to wait for the third and final big screen installment uh, called The Return of the King. Well, in the Hatton home, that was an unbearable wait. I mean, it was excruciating. It was... I don't even want to go into it. And just to begin with, I mean, patience is not a Hatton virtue to begin with. 
Well, I should correct that. Patience is not a hat and virtue in the, in the men. The women bear lots of patience with hat and men. I expect some Christmas kickback from that one. All right. Uh, so, when, so when the kids came running into my study and they said, Dad, the trailer, the trailer for the return of the king is on. I got up. I jump up. I'm sprinting with everybody else. You know, we get into the room. We all pack in this one little guest room. We got the computer. And I'm like, hurry, hurry. Fix this thing. Let's go. So we get to the website. We click it on. And we're like, and it's done. I go, let's see it again. Let's see it again. We click it. We do it again. We did this at least 10 times that night. At least. And then after the 10th time, we talked about it for two hours. We dissected it. We predicted what was happening. What do you think they meant when they were saying this? Do you think this was happening over there? And then we did this the next night 10 more times. And the next. And we did it for the next 10 months until the movie came out. So when the movie finally came out, it was, well, it was beyond reckoning, right? But there was a scene in this trailer that absolutely caught our imagination. It caught mine, and it, was, it had uh, Gandalf, Legolas, and Aragorn on a profile shot sideways as they were looking at the source and center of all malevolent evil in Middle-earth. The source and center of it over this far, far away, but they could see it, and Legolas says, the pieces are moving. And Gandalf says, the battle for Middle-earth has begun. Uh, when Gabriel shows up, the pieces are moving. The battle for earth has begun. Uh, Gabriel is one of two angels named in the Old Testament. What's the other one? Y'all remember? Michael. I mean, these are legendary angels. Legendary. In fact, uh, two of them are named, Gabriel and Michael, and the other two are not named. And they make up this elite group that very smart people call in angels, folklore, archangels, ruling angels, special angels. Uh, they're like God's praetorium guard. They're like his personal bodyguard, not because he needs protecting, but because they are his immediate servants. In other words, they're the first responders. They're the special forces. When, when climactic turning points in human history and the divine drama in life is unfolding, these are the first ones on the scene. These are the first ones that are present. Uh, so when Zechariah, a couple chapter, well, really a couple verses earlier, when God shows up to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son... And that's going to be John the Baptist. And he starts whining about, no, 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 we're, we're so old. I mean, look at my wife Elizabeth, right? And here's Gabriel's response. He says, I am Gabriel. He's very impatient. He says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. In other words, Zechariah, stop your whining. It's a really big deal when I show up. Um, Gabriel was also sent to Daniel many, many, many years earlier when there was visions of climactic events hurling towards them on a horizon that, that were immediate but also had far-off, far-touching, everlasting, cosmic, eternal realities. And Gabriel was the one that went to Daniel. Uh, the Pseudepigrapha, First Enoch. The Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha are contemporary writings of the Old Testament and New Testament. And those that, some of those that are not in non-Protestant traditions believe they should be in the Bible. We do not. The Bible is the Bible. 
But the pseudepigrapha says that Gabriel was in charge of paradise, and he was in charge of the cherubim, and he was in charge of the dragons. Now, I get the first two, paradise and the cherubim. I don't know what the dragons means. I just saw the hobbit, so maybe it has something to do with the hobbit. I have no idea. Uh, But Gabriel's name means God is my warrior, God is my hero, God is my champion. So what Gabriel's name points to is that God alone does it. That there's one warrior, there's one champion, there's one king, there's one person who achieves, there's one person who performs, there's one person who gets it done, there's one person who wins, and my name says him. So here's the point of verse 26. When Gabriel shows up, the pieces are moving. It's begun. Look at verse 26. Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So Gabriel says he will be great, right? And then he says... He will be called son of the most high. And then Gabriel says, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, Mary gets this. Mary's read her Bible. Mary knows about and is very familiar with the great men of the Bible. She knows the stories of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of David and even Gideon and even Samson. She knows these great stories. She knows about God choosing Uh, and selecting and anointing special leaders in Israel's history. She knows and she's very familiar with the meaning of sons of God in the Bible. She's not as confused by that term as we are. We immediately think of, I don't know what we think of. Sometimes we think of weird things like angels mating with women in Genesis and creating these sons of God. Weird translations like that. Uh, But she gets it. She gets that sons of God are a specially chosen, anointed people who are adopted into a special relationship with God. They're sons of his, like Adam and Abraham and Israel and David. She gets that, and she also gets the two great promises that are throughout Israel's history. The first one to Abraham about God saying, listen, even in the ruins of sin, I'm going to reestablish the kingdom of God that was lost in the garden. I'm going to be present with my people in a place. She gets that, and she gets the second one. She gets the one that was given to David, and it was like a promise to David. Is that David, you'll have a son, and he'll be a better David. He'll be a Messiah, and he'll be a king of, of almost cosmic proportions. Of his reign, there will be no end. Now, she gets a lot of what Gabriel is saying to her. What she doesn't get is this. How can I give birth to a great man when I'm a virgin? In other words, it's fascinating the way Mark presents Mary. She's she's mentioned two times as virgin before she's even named. He wants you to know something about her. And so Mary's purpose complexity and confusion here is kind of like it's kind of like this i guess i'm gonna have to have the talk with gabriel maybe they don't get the facts of life talk in heaven and the birds and the bees and maybe there's not a health class 101 in heaven in other words gabriel i've never been with a man that's her problem 
Mark scholar James Edwards exposes the usual moralistic interpretation of Mary's virginity. This is the usual interpretation. Luke is not highlighting Mary's virginity to exalt her as a pure and holy vessel worthy to give birth to the Savior King. Her virginity is presented as an obstacle to conception that can only be overcome by the miraculous and the creative power of God. So in other words, Mary's virginity is not a sexual purity lesson. Mary's virginity points to who this great one is. Okay? She doesn't get that yet. She gets that there are great anointed men in Israel's history. She gets that there are even occasions where barren women, either by health reasons or beyond age reasons, couldn't conceive of a child, and then all of a sudden, miraculously, God intervenes and grants conception. She gets that. She knows about Sarah and Isaac, and she knows about Hannah. She knows about that. But what she's not getting at this point is how can this great man be more than a man? Mary's virginity points to something more, something greater, something beyond man, a great man. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now again, a barren, a barren woman conceiving uh, was rare. But it had precedent. A virgin conceiving was unheard of. In fact, verse 37 says, impossible. There is no precedent. It's never happened. So this great one is not your ordinary, divinely anointed human son of God. But this great one is a divinely conceived Son of God. It's the arrival of God in human flesh. He's the 100% God and 100% man in one person. He's one person with two distinct, not to be separated, not to be conflated or confused natures, divine and human in one person. He is the wonder of the incarnation. Uh, He is the return of the king. So here's the big idea in the passage, all right? Christmas, the incarnation, God's arrival in human flesh changes everything. It connects most deeply to the deepest parts of you and the deepest parts of your story and the deepest parts of your history and your life. It changes everything because here's the reason why. The incarnation signals A substitute salvation, which is the deepest salvation there is. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man, so he can be your substitute, so he can take your place, Um, so he can write himself into your story, and you now have his story. He can write himself into your history so that you now have his history. So whatever his history is, is now your history. Whatever his story is, is now your story. This is the greatest news ever. And this is the most deep, connecting salvation ever. Uh, Those of you that are familiar with Oscar Wilde, y'all know who he is? 
Okay, he wrote a short novel, all you English professors know. Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray. Right? Y'all know this story? It goes like this. Dorian Gray is an uh, immoral young man uh, who is able to transfer his sins onto a magic picture or image of himself that's hidden in some room that nobody knows about. So he's able to take his immorality and transfer it to this image of himself, a portrait of himself that's often hidden in another room. Uh, now, because of the sin transfer, Dorian stays young forever. He looks perfect. He's beautiful. He's young. He's got youth, the vitality, the life, the energy of it. But his picture or his image uh, goes beyond just uh, becoming old. It starts withering and it starts decaying and it starts uh, becoming ghoulish and loathsome, uh, unrecognizable. And so the forever young hero becomes haunted by this image of himself. So you know what he does? Grabs a knife and he stabs the image, trying to get away, trying to get rid of this uh, image of guilt that's on this picture. And the moment he stabbed the picture, he stabs himself. And so Dorian Gray is dead. Unrecognizable except for the rings he was wearing. Jesus um, is a substitute salvation. And what that means is is that uh, your sins and your uh, blemishes and flaws and corruption and darkness and evil is transferred to him. Uh, he bears the judgment and the shame and the punishment and the condemnation and the falling to pieces of your very being. He becomes unrecognizable. And then the wonder of all wonders is uh, his righteousness, his holiness, uh, his beauty and his radiance and his approval and his acceptance is transferred to you. You stay a young person forever. A substitute salvation is the deepest salvation there is. John Calvin puts it this way, in short, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, in other words, from the time of Christmas and the incarnation, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem you. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. says that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he says this, he has this conversation with God. In Hebrews 10, they record it. It's recorded in Hebrews 10. What Jesus says, and he's actually using Psalm 40 to talk to God. And this is what he says. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. So God prepared a body of the one who would take your place. That he would take our place in judgment and he would take our place in justification. A substitute salvation. It's the best there is. So how does a substitute salvation 
change us on the spot, though. I mean, how does it reach down right now where you are and where I'm at? How does it reach into your relationships, reach into your personal life, reach into you and change you on the spot? How does that happen? Well, let's look at how it changed Mary. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A servant of the Lord is someone who believes the good news and a salvation, a substitute salvation. So in other words, what Mary ends up doing is she now gets it. Her greatest obstacle to getting, she had gotten anointed leaders in Israel's history. The conception part of her virginity was actually the leverage that God was using to push into her and into those after her that this is going to be more than just an anointed man. It's going to be a divinely conceived man, 100% God and 100% man. That's the reality. So she gets that. And when she gets it, she says, I'm a servant of the Lord. She believes it. She rests on it. She relies on it. She rejoices in it. I'm a servant. And in fact, that phrase there has no verb in it in the original language. So she's basically saying my identity is a substitute salvation. I am servant. It's my identity. Uh, A transfer has happened to her that has so secured her, so set her free, so filled her, and so empowered her. Her sin and her failures, uh, her judgment and shame went to Jesus once and for all on the cross. She'll get that, but that's what's happening. And Jesus' righteousness and holiness and cleanliness and perfection is transferred to her once and for all in the resurrection. She's going to get that, but she's getting it. She's becoming so secure and so free. The exact opposite of Aristotle. Aristotle. Aristotle taught that a man is defined by his deeds. So a good man is good. He's good because of his good deeds. Uh, he taught that this was the only way to prove yourself. This was the only way to gauge or measure your worth and your value. If you are a good person, you're good by your deeds. Your deeds become the measurement by your identity. The deeds become the measurement of whether you're a good person. It determines your value and your worth. And so measurement becomes everything to Aristotle. Uh, Progress and achievement and success and moving on and forward, it could be even religiously, was everything to him. And so Aristotle was on his own. Uh, Aristotle was trying to handle judgment and the fear of judgment on his own. Aristotle was trying to handle his righteousness or justification on his own. In other words, Aristotle kept stabbing himself over and over and over again. Now, that's one thing. So she believes. She says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Her identity is now this substitute salvation. Jesus is her identity. Jesus is her salvation. The great substitution has happened with her. But also notice what happens next. She continually believes this. Or in other words, in specific areas of her life, she believes in a substitute salvation. It's present tense what happens next. Uh, verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, Mary's saying, you know, let it be done to me as you say. I'm your girl. I'm the girl for the mission. What's the mission? I'm the girl. And basically what Mary is saying is, is this, is that uh, her life and her calling, uh, her marriage, or possibly now she might not be married. She doesn't know. This could be the end of her marriage. I mean, what honorable man in that day is going to go, all right, now what happened? 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon you. That's how you're pregnant. Right? So her marriage is at stake. Um, her desires are put on trusting God. Everything has been cast specifically on God. She's basically saying, God, I trust you with everything. My future, what you've called me to. Uh, I'm going to be the mother of God. I'm going to raise God's son. And I want you to look at how courageous she is because she's only probably a 12-year-old girl. How does a 12-year-old girl get that courageous? It says she's betrothed. Usually you're betrothed to a man right after you've reached puberty. So the moment you reach puberty in those days, you get engaged, and it's a year usually. So she's 12 or 13, 13 at the most, whenever she developed. So she's engaged. How does a 13, a 12, 13-year-old girl be that mature? Substitute salvation. She was so settled and so secure in the grace of God that she could say, so be it. What do you need me to do? So be it. Mary is a 13-year-old giant in grace. I trust you, God, with my life. Because Jesus, this one son, this great one, is my substitute. All my security and all my, my acceptance and approval, all the deepest needs and drives and longings, he meets. And he protects me from the worst nightmares and he protects me from ultimate doom. He protects me from destruction and judgment. I'm okay. Do you see how courageous this is? This leads us to another application that's hidden, that's kind of tucked in this text, and that's this. Age does not make you a mature person. Grace does. Do you get that? How can a 90-year-old person be immature? The answer is little getting grace. How does a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old be this mature? Or let's go to Daniel and let's go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or let's go to lots of folks in Israel's history. Teenagers. How do they get that mature? Much getting grace. Age does not make us mature. Status does not make us mature. Achievements and accomplishments do not make us mature. Grace does. Grace makes you mature. Paul, very well, had said, uh, well, he says this. When he is choosing church leaders, he gives this list of church leaders, whether they're pastors or they're elders or they're deacons, and the list is grace-produced grace-based, grace-infused, grace-driven qualities or directions in a person. Not age, not status, not success, 
In fact, so much so that he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy who probably is having a hard time in his particular church. And this is what he says to this young pastor. He says, let no one despise your youth. No one. Possibly he has Mary in mind when he's saying this. Who knows? All right, here's the final application. It's the one we hinted to earlier, and it's the one that scared me, and it's the one that kept me up late last night. I had to revisit Sandy Hill Elementary School. I mean, I had enough at this point, and I have enough right now to end. And I thought, literally last night, I could end right now. And I'm like, no. If Christmas doesn't speak to Sandy Hill Elementary, I need to quit. I need to go home. I need to get another job. So, how does the incarnation, a substitute salvation, connect deeply to Sandy Hill Elementary School? That's our last application. Here's the answer. A substitute salvation reaches the darkest, most painful places because God himself went there. Because God became a man and went there. He took the full measure of all evil, the full measure of all ghoulishness, the full measure of all malevolence, the full measure of all darkness. He took it all. He took the full measure of our brokenness, the full measure of despair, the full measure of fear, the full measure of every burden and human misery. He took. He went there. So we, he is someone who understands and gets it. You and I don't. We get pieces of it. We don't get it. He does. So he's someone who really gets it. So his compassion is very, very real. His compassion is coming from full measured knowledge of the darkest, most painful places there are in the universe because he's been there. He's an insider. So the application that I would say, and those of us that have been through Job kind of get it a little bit more, and that is we need to pray our pain to the God who gets dark places. We got to do more, though, don't we? Now look at verse 33. I think this is the only thing left for me at this point. Look at verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This means that Jesus' kingdom, now how does Jesus' kingdom come? You've got to get that. We've got to get this. In the Old Testament, New Testament, everything's been building. That The kingdom of God comes when? When the king shows up. And who is this king? 100% God, 100% man. So a substitute salvation is how the kingdom of God comes. It's how it advances and how it moves. So Jesus' kingdom, through the power of a substitute salvation, right now is on the move. Right now. Which means it's on the move at Sandy Hill Elementary. We don't get it. Um, We don't fully understand it. 
But Jesus says so. My kingdom is on the move. So this means uh, that his kingdom has the final say at Sandy Hill Elementary. The unbearable loss, the, the cutting, splitting, shivering, shrieking pain does not. His kingdom has the final word. Because one day, this text says, his kingdom will be all there is forever. So one day, unbearable loss has an end game, an end point, an ultimate defeat. One day, shredding pain has an end point, an ultimate defeat. That one day, diabolical evil um, ends. So at Christmas, God came in human flesh. Why? To win. Why? 